Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Be a leader in loss prevention by implementing integrated solutions that enhance safety, reduce shrink, and help to improve merchandising, operations, and customer service. Bosch Integrated Security and Communication Solutions spans Zones 1 through 4 in the LPRC's Zones of Influence while enriching the customer experience and delivering valuable data to help increase retail profitability. Learn more by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast. This is our latest in our weekly uh, update series, the first of 2021. Uh, here we are on a Tuesday morning at 8.30 Um and uh, I'm joined, uh, as usual, by my colleagues, uh, Tom Meehan and Tony D'Onofrio and our producer, Kevin Tran, uh, on LPRC's Crime Science. So um, I'll go ahead and get us rolling. Of course, always, it seems, uh, for the last uh, year now, at the top of the news is the uh, pandemic, the uh, COVID-19 global pandemic. And we'll talk a little about, we know that reported infections uh, are up. Uh, almost everywhere in the entire world, um, and in most places, in this case, in the United States, um, a lot of holiday travel and exposure. Exposure is what it's about. Each of us are potentially in the transmission chain of the virus to keep it alive and moving. That's what it does. Um, and it can only uh, continue to tr- be to transmit itself and to maintain its own DNA by moving from host to host, and that's each of us humans. So, um, Obviously, when we're close together, that's the only way it can move uh, fr- uh, from person to person. Um, and so certainly distancing and masking uh, are there for that reason, as well as washing our hands. So um, we're seeing that going up uh, in most most areas, um, a lot more testing going on. But as a rate is what we're looking at of a rate for 100 or 1,000 tests conducted, what percent of those Um register is positive. We know there are false negatives and there are false positives in the testing um, that we also are understanding because so much uh, of the virus when they're testing positive is being assayed. In other words, there, there's a forensic examination to understand the coding and to see how does that match up and has there been any change uh, or mutations in what the scientists are seeing, the technicians are seeing. The UK is particularly good at this, uh, even though we have a lot of it going on in the United States and other countries around the world. Um, And they were the first to start to report a more systematic uh, mutation uh, in the the COVID or the SARS-CoV-2 virus that creates the COVID-19 disease. Um, And one that looked like through their studies uh, was making the virus more readily transmissible, more, you know, move from human to human or host to host uh, more rapidly and more easily. Again, another reason for us to mask and distance from each other doesn't mean we can't be around, but just we can't be within distance for the viral particles to transmit mostly through the air, uh, through particles, the particles uh, on the droplets. So, um, but looks like so far they're reporting that uh, it's it's uh, more transmissible, but not necessarily more serious, create a more serious disease in those that uh, onboard enough of the virus to become infected. Um, as well as hopefully does not look like the vaccines that are continuing to come online now um, uh, would not be effective uh, in, in combating it. Um, but at the same time, because there are still a lot of uh, 
us that have not yet been infected with the, uh, the virus and gotten COVID-19 disease, uh, particularly at a serious level. Uh, we're seeing deaths occurring in the United States and around the world. Uh, and the fear is the more humans that get it, obviously a percent of, of us that get it are gonna have very serious illness and, and even fatalities, could be fatalities. Uh, and so the idea again is if a virus mutates and becomes more deadly, if you will, um, that's maybe not as serious a threat as if it's more transmissible, which is the case here. Um, and we also understand that in South Africa, they've noted several new strains. They too were conducting forensic assays of the virus, um, and they're reporting a new strain that seems to be particular, uh, particularly transmissible, maybe more virulent or create more serious diseases, my understanding. Uh, but the possibility that while it may not, its next variant may be resistant to the vaccine. So we, uh, my understanding is you see this with cold viruses uh, and uh, influenza viruses and RSV viruses all the time. Um, and so we're seeing it here. And it's another argument, another reason for people, again, to distance and mask and to distribute and, and onboard the vaccine as quickly as possible around the world so that we don't see uh, more serious uh, mutations occurring in these virus and the virus. So that's a little bit from that front, what seems to be going on. Um, so uh, we also saw that areas that had been particularly good at sheltering in place and separation um, now maybe have been hit because people started to come out and, and, and so on. So you're seeing that areas that maybe got had lower infection rates or lower serious disease and fatality rates now maybe are being hit, particularly areas where the medical system can be very rapidly overwhelmed and, and can no longer take on more patients and so on. It's like uh, on the highway, traffic stops and everybody starts backing up. Uh, so on the vaccine front, I mean, just all day, every day, we're all seeing um, a lot of questions, a lot of things going on. Uh, very exciting what, uh, obviously, what Moderna and Pfizer um, were able to do. AstraZeneca uh, now coming online at some point, uh, hopefully in the first quarter of next year, J&J &J and several others. Um, so I think that uh, with the AstraZeneca, we're seeing that UK has now uh, approved it. Uh, it's not yet approved in the United States or in the, the European Union. Um, they're going to be taking a look at it uh, coming up here and see if that could uh, a third, yet a third um, vaccine could be onboarded and start to be distributed. Um, the United States, uh, it's my understanding now that uh, the, the Operation Warp Speed not only got the, uh, these viruses funded, or the viruses vaccine, excuse me, funded, uh, and the manufacturing funded, and some of the liability removed, but uh, the logistic train and the planning got out uh, about 16 or 17 million doses, um, but about five to six million have now been administered in the United States. Uh, again, the administration primarily is, is in hospitals or in uh, county health departments, so you can imagine there's a there's a lot going on there. And with the sub-zero uh, storage requirements, that creates an incredible amount of logistical, uh, a logistical nightmare for those handling this. Um, and they need that zero storage because it's biomatter and it needs to remain stable. Um, and so they are doing testing to see how actually high of a temperature can you go. But the initial testing showed really cold, right? Minus 70, 90 degrees and things like that. Uh, in some cases for the Pfizer, 
Um, so they are doing testing on that and doing testing on adding, you know, stabilizers into the vaccine that are um, benign to humans, um, but would allow the, obviously the, the vaccine to be stored uh, for longer at much higher temperatures uh, and not require that. We see another uh, area of study that people are racing to, and, and it becomes part of what do policymakers do um, as they try and uh, race to slow down the transmission, particularly because again, the more that are more of us that are infected at the same time, uh, the more likely that those that we're going to have more serious disease, but also not be able to take care of the patients because of overwhelming the medical system. That's the old flatten the curve we that we've heard about. Um, two versus one dose. You know, the testing showed with the first two vaccines out the door, uh, the Pfizer, BioNTech, and the uh, Moderna, that uh, two doses were optimal to get uh, 95, roughly 95 percent efficacy. Um, People that were in the placebo arm were 95% more likely to get the disease, um, not necessarily to be infected, get the disease from being infected um, and show symptoms than those that got the vaccine. So powerfully uh, and very efficacious vaccines, uh, but they were after two doses and the doses look optimally to be 21 or 28 days apart. Um, you get some immunity after roughly 10 to 14 days. If you look at some of the data and they show um, some pretty uh, graphic illustrations showing. In the placebo arm, it was dramatic difference between those that were infected and showing symptoms uh, in the placebo arm. Whereas the after 10 days, we saw um, a flatline infection rate from those that were vaccinated. And it was one of the most striking uh, data uh, analytical you know, a visualization tool I've ever seen. So moving on, um, that's gonna be a big debate, uh, looking, trying to make it a science-based, do we use one dose? Because it looks like the dramatic difference in infection rate comes after one dose um, and it comes after 10 to 14 days. Do we just go ahead and vaccinate more people with one dose and hope and pray we can get more vaccine? The second dose is pushed out in time uh, or is it okay? Can it can, instead of being given 21 or 28 days later, could it be given uh, two, three months later? Um, now we get more people protected more rapidly. So right now, uh, 44 uh, vaccines in phase one, 19 and two, 20, 20 vaccines in phase three, large scale trials. And now we have seven with emergency use authorization, including the two in the United States, Moderna and Pfizer Biotech's um, versions. So uh, I think with that, we'll turn over to talk just for one minute about LPRC um, and some upcoming uh, crime science episodes. We're gonna start having some of our team join us and talk a little bit about LPRC Innovate, what we're up to talk about AI Solve, the artificial intelligence uh, R&D that we're then conducting and are start ramping up in 2021. We're gonna talk about some of the anti-theft research that is underway or planned anti-violence research, and of course, anti-fraud. Um, and then finally, wrapping up Operation Next Level has been launched with Lights, Lighthouse Consultants, a five-man uh, team that are out there getting ready to reach out to several hundred retailers around the world uh, and talked initially starting in the United States and North America um, about LPRC, how we work, um, and our board of advisors putting out video clips and reaching out as well uh, as part of taking LPRC to the next level, getting 
top-notch retailers to join the community, top-notch solution partners to become involved and join as members of this community and working together with LPRC scientists and each other. So with no further ado, I'm gonna go ahead and move over to uh, Tom Meehan and uh, he's gonna update us on all things fraud. Well, thank you, Reed, and Happy New Year, everybody. This is our uh, first episode after the new year. And um, just want to give a, a couple updates as we've been speaking in the last couple of weeks about this uh, massive Russian hack. And I think uh, we were pretty early to the table when we, we spoke about it. I think we actually taped an episode the day that it was publicly uh, announced and was pretty much in every news outlet globally. So there have been some significant updates and some information that I think is pertinent to talk about. One, the as we suspected and talked about earlier, this is the largest kind of uh, state-sponsored attack that we know of on record. I think when it was first released, there was some questions of the one that happened about five or six years ago and where it came through. Um, the, the first thought was that it focused primarily on the Department of Commerce and Treasury. Um, that has expanded significantly, although the reports are still out in the open. Right now, the federal government has said it, it's affected roughly 250 businesses and government agencies. Um, that, that's what they're really talking about. And, and it's, it's a multi-part attack. And I think when we first reported, we talked about the solar winds piece of it, which was a very widely used high-end um, malware detection and intrusion software that had a vulnerability that was taken advantage of. That was one of the, the pieces of it. Also, the Microsoft recently reported that they had some source code that was made vulnerable uh, because of this. And they also actually said that they were able to determine that a, uh, at least one, and this is a, you know, this information is, is ever changing, at least one business's uh, email was compromised due to it. Now, I think as the weeks go on, we'll learn more about it. And um, as with a lot of these hacks, what's appropriate to be uh, given out will be given out. I don't know that we'll ever have the full the full breast of it. And um, I don't know that we need to. But um, And I think when we spoke last, why does this matter? Well, it matters for a couple of reasons. One is it is a state-sponsored attack. And um, when you think of you know, international and global relations, this has significant long-term um, implications on both how we as the United States react to Russia, but also how cybersecurity is, is viewed in the, in the near and far future. And um, when you think of SolarWinds, it was a best-in-class software package. And one of the things we focus heavily on the LPRC is regardless of the mitigation or the the kind of mousetrap, if you will, that will build, the bad guys are constantly trying to defeat it. So as all of us are listening to this podcast, learning about what's going on, um, the reality is that there are some folks that are have uh, nefarious intent listening to the same uh, podcast and trying to learn what it, you know, what things are out there to, you know, stop this and mitigate it. And they'll, as we perfect our skills, so do they. So um, the last thing I'll say about this hack, and I mentioned it before, is the U.S. government hasn't really... Um, taking a public stance on how they'll respond. It, it, it is as close to an act of war as it could be, um, you know, in, in the sense that it was an a, a attack on a, a government infrastructure. So I think in the next upcoming weeks, we're going to really see what our response will be. And then I think the, the continued um, the continued information will become available. So we'll continue to report on that. 
switching gears kind of to the, to the COVID front, and I'll, I'll touch on this very quickly because we did touch on this um, many times even before the vaccinations were out, is the, the potential for scams and, and people unfortunately trying to take advantage of the, the vaccination efforts, and that is occurring. Uh, one of the most widely um, seen scams at, to date is a, a waitlist scam where um, people are presenting you know, a wait list and a prepay option for your vaccination. So if you're not in, in that category of first responder or folks that are eligible for the vaccination now, um, there is a, what, uh, w- what looks to be a very, very realistic kind of medical provider saying, hey, we're happy to get you on first, but in order to secure your dosage, we're going to ask for a prepaid deposit. And it's important to note that these aren't huge dollar amounts, right? Like these these companies are really, uh, these bad guys are really portraying what a company would, saying, you know, the vaccination would cost X. We're asking for all your insurance mom- money and, and a, a information and a small, um, a small kind of don- um, deposit, whether it be half of the price or less. That's what we're seeing. So this isn't one of those things where someone's asking for a large percentage of money, which in, in, and makes the scam more appetizing and easier for people to uh, come on. Like if, if I go on and I'm told I only need to give you 20 or $30, you know, that's not as big as a challenge, but if these scammers get, you know, a thousand people to give them 20 or $30 a day, it's a, it's a lucrative business for them. So be on the lookout for that. They are using very, very good websites and text messaging systems to kind of work through this and, and make it look and feel as real as possible. They're also, um, one of the things I thought that was very clever is they're following news reports. So they're doing these um, these text messages after news reports and citing the news reports or the government's making a comment. So um, they look pretty good. I've only seen two of them so far. And um, while it, it, it's a, a pretty typical kind of vishing or phishing type of attempt. The reality is uh, they've taken a lot of time in making this look and feel authentic. So just keep your antenna up on that. Um, and then I will wrap it out with uh, some of expected protest activity. Um, we, I'm sure that we'll discuss this on the next podcast next week, but uh, we're taping today on a Tuesday, January 5th and the 6th. There is um, some widespread uh, spread protesting that is planned that's expected to happen in the capital area um, or, you know, uh, around the election. And so uh, I think we it, it's a little early to to make any type of assessments that the news chatter and the, the chatter on the intelligence side is all over the place. Um, from a standpoint of how many people will be attending, what what groups will be attending. I think what we've seen throughout most of these protests recently is that um, you're starting to see a mixed group where you have an agitators attending to just be agitators and then you have actual folks that are there for the cause. So um, tomorrow, January 6th, should be um, in D.C. a very interesting day. Um, I've seen reports as little as 300, as many as 300,000. So um, unfortunately, I don't have a real good sense based on what I'm seeing in the open source intelligence side of it. The the law enforcement and federal government have taken the stance of the National Guard is in, uh, retailers and businesses are boarding up. So I think everybody is, because of the recent occurrences in the last six months with civil disturbance and civil disruption, I think we're, we're planning for the worst and hoping for the best. And with that, um, I will turn it over to Tony. 
Thank you very much, uh, Tom, and to this team and to everyone else, Happy New Year. So let me start by going around the world with an update from Visual Capitalist on video surveillance and how many cameras are deployed around the world. So the first CCTV camera, and this was interesting, was installed in Germany in 1942 during the war. 79 years later, uh, this coming year, this year, 2021, we will reach 1 billion cameras that will be installed around the world. China, which is not a surprise, and India, which is a surprise, lead the world with the highest density of CCTV cameras deployed. The number one city with the most cameras in the world is Chennai, India, which has 657 cameras per square kilometer. Number two is also Hydra in India, it's Hyderabad, with 480 cameras per square kilometer. Number three is in China, it's Harbin with 411. And number four was a surprise, it's London with 399 cameras per square kilometer. And number five, again, in China, Xiamen, uh, with 385 cameras per square mile. And just to give you an idea, sorry, per square kilometer. And to give you an idea what a kilometer is equal to six tenths of a mile. So that's a lot of cameras in, uh, in uh, six tenths of a mile. In terms of cameras per thousand people, number one is Tayen, China with 119 cameras per 1,000 people. Again, that's a lot of cameras per 1,000 people. Number two is London with 67 cameras per 1,000 people. And number three is, is Beijing, China, the capital with uh, 56 cameras. In fact, Beijing has actually got one of the highest density in the world. In that city, there are 1.1 million cameras installed. So that's a little bit about the explosion of video surveillance around the world and the importance of cameras around the world in terms of across all sectors, including by governments. Uh, so let me switch now to an update in terms of what happened in the holiday season this year and what happens to overall retail. And this is all focused on the US. So let me start from retail dive on the holiday season. Black Friday was unlike any other that came before it where retailers actually trying to keep consumers out of stores this year. Uh, shopping started much earlier in November through heavy discounting and was really kicked off in October by Prime Day by Amazon. Online shopping on Black Friday hit records. Foot traffic overall in stores was down 50%. In malls, it was down 53%. And in outlet centers, it was down near 48%. E-marketers predicted a 36% increase in online sales to reach $190 billion this holiday season. E-commerce sales increased 31% in October and 32% in November. All these online sales are also going to lead to a higher number of returns. So retailers can expect anywhere from 50% to 100% returns this year. And that comes to a whopping 280 billion dollars that are projected to be returned this year. It's the first year where Macy's limited the attendance at the parade. They, they actually limited to down by 75%. Many stores uh, discovered the beauty of virtual centers. Our Nordstrom, for example, made available, you could have 15 minute, a 15 minute video call with Santa for $20. 
virtual shopping became a thing uh, for a lot of brands. And the losers included apparel, which was down dramatically. Uh, furniture and home goods, sales skyrocket, and even Wayfair, which uh, traditionally has not made a profit, made a profit uh, during the holiday season with their furnishing model. So that's a little bit on the holiday season. So what happened for the entire year in retail? This is an analysis of 11 months from Bloomberg. And it really was talking about boom and bust in 2020 in retail across 10 charts. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about each. So number one, and I like this title, toilet paper was on a roll. And that's true, along with multiple other categories. In a single week in March, sales of liquid soap soared 320%, frozen meat 132%, and toilet paper 236%. Hand sanitizer skyrocketed more than 1,000% from early May to early July. So that's number one. Number two, online grocery carts fill up. The pandemic has accelerated the adoption of online grocery by five years. Nearly 10% of overall grocery sales in 2020 were online, and they're now projected to reach 20% of overall grocery sales by 2025. Number three, big tickets. Uh, shoppers went to less stores, but when they did go to stores, they bought more. And that's actually reflected in the Walmart's results, which saw declines in the number of uh, transaction offset by a boom in sales per shopping trip. So in Q2, Walmart per shopping trail sales were up 20% uh, versus, and the, the same happened in Q3. Number four, which is good news for retail, even during a pandemic, stuff rules. We love to shop. Sales dipped dramatically starting in March, but actually have now fully recovered to pre-pandemic level plus some growth. Number five, spending shifts. Uh, we, shift, we shifted from dressy clothes and food we consume in ballparks to frozen foods, uh, massage appliances, crock, crocs, shoes, printers, mattresses, snowshoes, rice cookers, bicycles, and hair masks. Not to mention the explosion of DIY for Lowe's and Home Depot who pulled, each pulled in more than a year's worth of growth in the third quarter after similar high growth in the previous three months. So non-store sales in those 11 months were up 23%. Uh, building and material and garden equipment were up 13%. Food and beverage stores were up 12%. Sport and hobby goods stores, 4%. Clothing was down 29%. And restaurants, food services and drinking Restaurants and bars down nearly 20%. Number six, a bunch of brands got zoomed to the top. So the zoom phenomenon. So the break, some of the breakout brands that came out of the pandemic were Peloton, whose stock boomed by more than four, 436%. Etsy was the best performing stock in the S&P 500 index. Yeti shares are now up more than 100%. Number seven, store shakeout. More than 11,000 stores closed in those 11 months. This followed more than 10,000 that closed in 2019. So the retail apocalypse, as it was called, continued. Number eight, rough run for workers, especially for non-essentials. Uh, retail still has not recovered the amount 
of volume of retail employees to pre-pandemic. It was close to 60 million pre-pandemic. It's now just above 50 million. Number nine, dining div devastation. A staggering 110,000 closings in restaurants. I mean, capacity restriction and increased dining at home. Quick service has returned to pre-pandemic level. Fast casual restaurants are almost there, but casual restaurants are still down by almost 30%. And then number 10, praying the price. So retailers have started increasing prices as a result of the pandemic. And this is a new, uh, as Bloomberg put it, this has really been a unique year where they've been able to do it. So there's been double digit price increases in spices, dish detergents, luncheon meats, frozen meats, rice, barbecue sauce, spaghetti sauce, that's a no-no, and cups and plates. Uh, so now, and those are the top the, the 10 trends uh, that really covered the year. So the game is now on in this year to figure out which of these trends will stick as we go forward with consumers past the pandemic. So the good news for all of us, it was a good retail year overall. And we can all look forward to a, a year with vaccines as, uh, as Reed went through. And hopefully there was less risk that uh, some of the risk being less that Tom talked to. So I'm looking forward to a happy new year for both retail, for all of us, and for loss prevention. And with that, I'm going to turn it over back to Reed. Oh, good, good stuff, Tony. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom, also for all the insights and keeping us aware and alert uh, about what's going on physically on the ground, what's going on digitally, um, and the threats are ever-present. We see violence. We know that um, two Walmart uh, AP associates were shot and wounded along with a law enforcement officer um, as a result of a shoplifter, an armed shoplifter. Um, the, the latest we've got is that all are recovering very well. Um, from that event, the shoplifter not so much um, in this case, but we know that uh, there's a lot of theft, of fraud, and violence happening around the United States and elsewhere, um, and so we've got our work cut out for us. Um, those of you uh, in the LPRC community that are involved with FusionNet, um, we're going to be having a cluster call around that, uh, and Tom alluded to uh, one of the two primary uh, issues that we're dealing with. One is um, demonstrations around the election results um, and any potential side effects. And it seems like retail is affected by just about anything that occurs. Um, and uh, as well as the second one will be coming up, uh, it'll be the second in the series, uh, our discussion around the vaccine protection uh, and the logistics or supply chain, as well as uh, in-store or off-prem. Uh, some locations, as we know, are going to be distributing that vaccine there. Um, and the big drug chains are already working in tandem with and for the government to distribute the vaccine in elder care centers um, and may be asked to uh, speed up the process as far as uh, mass distribution, because again, it's so difficult for very tiny um, uh, county health departments and so on. Uh, and so the, we all know that the drug chains, the pharmacies are very good at reminding us if we have a prescription that's due uh, and getting, getting things done. So um, look for all that, but those will be two uh, fusion net issues and two cluster call issues that will be coming up. So I want to again, thank everybody 
uh, out there listening to Crime Science, the podcast. We've got a lot of exciting uh, episodes coming up. Kevin Tran and team are curating those and editing those that are in the bucket. Um, and then with this team on the weekly updates, of course, um, I want to, of course, thank Tony D'Onofrio for bringing on so many great guests uh, and look forward to more and more. Uh, the same from Tom Meehan. Uh, and then uh, our so as I mentioned, we'll be bringing our LPRC team members on one by one to uh, talk a little bit about what they're doing in, uh, in very focused research areas for you all. So stay safe. Please always go to lpresearch.org. Uh, check us out. Let us know what you think. Uh, we're always looking for new ideas and better ways. Uh, so stay safe out there. And for the LPRC team, uh, for Kevin Tranner, producer, and for Tommy and Tony Donofrey, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.